Thank you for the gift. Wow, this is, I feel honored. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's great to be in the house of the Lord with, with you all and, and get to corporately worship with you and enter the gates of heaven, even but for a little while. This morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 4, uh, verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bible or device, please turn there. If not, uh, please raise your hand and we've got uh, some scriptures for you to take. <clears throat> It's a privilege to open God's word this morning, and I always take it as a very serious thing. You know, James tells us that uh, we need to be very careful about what we teach or preach because we're going to be held accountable for our words. And so it's always uh, with some fear and trepidation that I I stand and and open God's word. Um, But I'm confident this morning this is what God would have us hear. So if you're there in in Matthew 4, I invite you to please stand out of reverence for God and his word. We're going to read the first four verse, uh, excuse me, the first 11 verses of chapter 4. But uh, today's message will only get, will only get into verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you but fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Gracious God, as we look to your word now, as we look to you to reveal yourself to us, we submit ourselves under your authority. We ask that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would become more like Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you that he bore our sin on the cross and that he lived a sinless, perfect life, that we could have a right relationship with you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides and directs our steps, who convicts us of sin and shows us truth. May you please do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you sit, I invite you to uh, greet those around you. Thank you.
This morning as we worship the Lord, my dad is dying. While only God knows the exact time and date that his faith will become sight, when he will enter into the presence of God and see Jesus face to face, the medical staff at the VA hospice center where he's at has told us, my family and I, that he has moments, days, weeks to live. His heart is wildly out of rhythm. His mind has largely left him. And yet, his faith is sure. I received this news about seven weeks ago, and I'm, quite honestly, I'm surprised he's still with us on this side of eternity. Thankfully, I was blessed with the opportunity to take emergency leave. And I flew back to my hometown of Denver, Colorado. And as I sat there in the Naha airport at my gate, preparing to board my, uh, board my first flight home, you know, on that long journey um, across the Pacific, I was preparing to say goodbye to my life's first hero. And a flood of emotions came rushing into my mind, relentless waves of discouragement, of anger, of grief, of exhaustion. They washed over me over and over as I recalled a lifetime's worth of memories with my dad. And in this time, each of those memories was tempting my soul to doubt God's gracious character to doubt God's unfailing promises and love for me. Yet in that moment of great spiritual danger, when the voices in my soul were growing louder and louder, my heart was in danger of hardening with despair. A still, small voice spoke to me. The voice of our God. He reminded me of a verse I had memorized years and years before. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. As a result, my heart was tender. My will was submissive. I was no longer in danger of hardness. My mind was at peace, for I knew that my God loved me and was with me as I faced an unknown future. And so I committed then and there to look for opportunities to minister to people in need around me. And as God would providentially see fit, he brought me on my last flight into Denver, seated next to a woman who was clearly in need. I reached out, started conversation with her. We were engaged in, in discussion and, and she confessed to me that she was a brand new Christian and that she too was struggling with saying goodbye to her dad because she was going to the exact same VA hospice center I was going to. And yet here she was tempted to despair because her father had not trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And she didn't know what to say. 
And so in our moment of grief, we had joy because we knew God was with us and we prayed together. We encouraged one another and we left each other there praying at the baggage carousel there at Denver International Airport with hope and joy, knowing that God would see us through. Can you relate to a similar circumstance in your life where you've been tempted, where you have felt that everything around you is, in, is overwhelming and you're crying out, help me, Jesus. My life is so hard, I'm so tempted to sin right now. I don't know what to do. Have you ever been there? If you haven't, you will be because that's part of the life of following Jesus. Struggling with temptation and sin in this lost and dying world is to be expected by every believer in Jesus Christ. But the good news is, is we are not bound to sin. In fact, we've been given all that we need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. And here is today's main point. Because Jesus overcame temptation in his human nature, we can have victory too by meeting our temptations as he met his. We have six principles to look at in today's passage. The first one deals with Jesus's fully divine, yet fully human nature. Then we look at three that address the nature of temptation itself. And then finally, we're gonna close with two principles that help us to overcome temptation. There's more later in the passage, but we have time for the first four verses today. So let's look at verse one. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The then in verse one is a contextual clue showing us that what is about to be described is linked directly with what just took place. And so we see that this temptation of Jesus immediately follows his baptism. And if you're like me, the first time I ever read this, I was wondering to myself, why was Jesus baptized? Wasn't he perfect? Isn't he good? He's, he doesn't need to get baptized. And yet in verse 15 of chapter three, we see his reasoning. He said to John, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so by submitting to John's baptism, Christ clearly obeyed the will of God the Father and he identified himself with us sinners as a man. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus emptied himself of his divine glory when he came to earth. He took on the form of a servant in his conception, in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his life after his death until his uh, final resurrection. While he is fully God, he is fully human. Just like you and me. And so here's our first main point. Jesus' perfect obedience enables us to enjoy positive righteousness before God. So we see here in chapter three, he had his baptism. Here in chapter four, his victory over temptation. And then throughout the gospels, we see his perfect obedience throughout his entire life here on earth as a man. 
And as a result of that, Jesus would ultimately be able to bear our sins so that his perfect righteousness would then be imputed to us on our account. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And the way I like to think of it, it's, it's much like funds being transferred from one account to another account. You see, you and I, born into sin, are spiritually bankrupt. We're not just neutral. We just not have zero funds in our account. But in God's eyes, we, we are far into the red. And we could never get ourselves out of the red without some help. And so the riches of heaven are given to us in Jesus Christ. So not only did he pay for our sins on the cross, so our debt is paid in full, but his positive active righteousness by living a perfect life are now attributed to our account so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the positive righteousness of Jesus. And so we, as co-heirs of Jesus, as children of God the Father, have all the riches of heaven at our disposal. What a blessing. What a privilege that is. And so while we often focus on the cross as the means by which God carries out his work of salvation, Jesus' acts of obedience before the cross are an equally necessary part of his overall work. And so because Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father, his righteousness is applied to you and to me. When we turn to him in salvation. Additionally, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that one of Jesus' roles was to serve as the second Adam. He achieved for us what the first Adam failed to accomplish. So we have a contrast be between the first original Adam in the Garden of Eden, surrounded by luscious vegetation and fruit, a great environment. He had his, his beautiful wife with him to encourage him. And yet he chose to sin. In that moment of temptation, he chose to sin. On the other hand, we have the second Adam, Jesus Christ. In the desolate wilderness of Judea, no human company around him to support him, hungry, fasting after 40 days and 40 nights. Yet he chose, when tempted, to obey God the Father. Both were subjected to a probationary test. Yet one and only one achieved obedience and righteousness. The first Adam brought ruin. The second Adam brings righteousness, if we would but believe. So for Christ to redeem us as the second Adam, he had to be put to the test. Like the first Adam, he was placed on probation, as we see in today's passage. And the eternal plight of all of us was hinging upon his obedience. So going on in verse one, we see Jesus was baptized. Then he was led by the spirit. And we see this kind of shocking statement that, it was the Holy Spirit that impelled him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is the one 
who pushed him out into the wilderness knowing Jesus was going to be tempted. The same is true for us. We are tempted. God often puts us in circumstances and places where we will be put to the test. Yet, the Lord is with us through it all. And we look throughout the pages of Scripture, we find Jesus being led throughout his time on earth by the Holy Spirit. Not just here in the wilderness, but throughout his entire earthly ministry, particularly with his preaching, performing miracles, and his work on the cross. We see throughout it all, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. And he was an obedient son with the Spirit guiding his steps along the way. And so again, as followers of Jesus, Scripture makes it clear to us that we need to be led by the Holy Spirit of God, just like he was. We need to keep in step with the Holy Spirit as he directs us in life. Like Christ, we need to submit to God the Father. And even though it is full of risk from a human perspective, it is full of blessing from a divine perspective. And we'll see that as this passage unfolds. So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Following his anointing by the Spirit in chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus leaves the Jordan River, climbs up the hiked up the rugged terrain of the Judean wilderness. And here, Matthew is pointing us back to the theological significance of the Exodus. We look back to the Israelites, and as they were wandering after escaping the clutches of the Egyptians, they wandered and wandered and wandered in the wilderness. And according to Deuteronomy 8.2, God led Israel in the wilderness. Why? To test them. To know what was in their heart. Whether they would keep his commandments or not. They failed repeatedly, time and again. Falling into the same patterns of sin over and over and over Would Jesus fall into the same traps? Would he give in to unbelief, complaining, backbiting, fear? In moments of great duress, would he misuse his power to save the world and instead focus on meeting his own needs? The fate of the entire world for all time stood precariously on a knife's edge as the spirit purposefully thrust the son into grave spiritual danger to be tempted by the devil. And so that brings us to our second point. Although Satan tempts us to sin, God tests us for our good and for his glory. Now it's important for us to pause here and note that while this event took place in the plan of God, it does not mean God initiated the temptation. For as we've seen in James 1.13, God tempts no one. What it does mean is that despite our sin nature, the evil of others, or even the wicked intent of Satan, God will accomplish his sovereign purposes. The Greek verb here means to test. Now, this word may be used in a good positive sense with the intention that people will pass the test, 
And we see this, for example, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, where it states that Abraham was tempted by God, excuse me, when he was tested by God, when he offered up Isaac. God tested Abraham to strengthen his faith. <coughs> However, it may also be used in an evil negative sense where the intention is to get the other person to fail. When the word refers to this second sense, it is translated to tempt in the New Testament. And so bottom line, what the devil uses to negatively tempt us, God also uses to positively test our faithfulness and ultimately bring glory to himself. In addition to today's passage, we see this in the lives of Job. We see this in the life of Peter. And we see it in the life of Joseph. For example, in Genesis 50, 20, after Jacob's death and Joseph's brothers get together, they realize their brother might bring vengeance upon what they did to him for selling him into slavery years ago. And instead, Joseph shows grace. He shows spiritual maturity. And he states, as for you his brothers, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So this week, when things get tough, remember, God always pursues our good and his glory, always, every time even in the midst of trials, tribulations, and temptation. And that brings us to point number three in verse two. Spiritual opportunities often come in the midst of physical distress. Jesus de deliberately deprived himself of food by fasting for 40 days and 40 nights to reveal the deepest part of his human nature to himself and God the Father. If you've ever fasted from food deliberately or you've unintentionally had to skip several meals at a time, you know very quickly that the pressure of hunger can be incredibly self-revealing. Your true, true colors come out. If you're like my family, uh, you have to show extra grace to someone around you who's hungry because they become hangry, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and for our Okinawan brothers and sisters, hangry is an American word that simply puts hungry and angry together. So we become hangry in my family. And yet here we have Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights, no food. He's hungry. But let's face it, life is so much harder when we aren't 100% physically. When we aren't well fed, when we haven't gotten the rest that we need, when, when we're hot, we're tired, all these things, we just are struggling with temptation much more strongly in those times. In fact, if you're like me, you're kind of like the Israelites in the desert. You complain a lot. You whine, you struggle with doing simple things. 
And in, in the temptation is to focus on our immediate physical needs instead of looking at our broader, eternal, spiritual opportunities that we have available to us. As a result, we miss out on so many blessings that God wants to lavish out on us and lavish out on other people. Think of Paul. Paul went through a lot in his life, didn't he? He struggled. He gave up so much for the cause of the gospel. And we find him in the end of the book of Acts, rotting in a Roman prison. And if Paul had given up in the midst of his physical distress and not taken advantage of the spiritual opportunities presented to him, you and I would not be blessed today with the books of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Think of that. God used the faithfulness of Paul in the midst of his physical distress to be a blessing to us. So what about you? In your physical distress, who needs the spiritual blessing around you? And that moves us to our fourth point in verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And this tells us that temptations frequently present themselves as reasonable alternatives to obeying God's will. They're reasonable. They make sense. They're logical. When the tempter, the devil says, if you are the son of God, he's not expressing doubt or attempting to place doubt in Jesus's mind. Instead, the devil knows quite clearly Jesus is the son of God. What he's really doing is challenging Jesus to perform a spectacular but not messianic miracle. Satan's trying to get Jesus to exploit his position and power. He's trying to get the Son of God to wrongly use his divine nature to meet physical needs, even if they're legitimate. Because after all, surely doing such a, a small thing, like turning a few stones into bread, that's really not harmful, is it? And after all, Jesus, aren't you really hungry? And surely, as the Son of God, don't you have the right to use your powers to fulfill a legitimate physical need? Oh, and Jesus, if, if you really are to, to care for people, you need to take care of yourself first. Jesus bore the weight of that temptation. And yet, unlike what we do, and what we would probably do in that moment, given the intensity of that direct temptation from the devil himself, and the incredible weakness of our bodies due to prolonged fasting, instead of what we would do, Jesus refuses to perform a miracle, and he obeys the will of the Father. Because the will of the Father for that moment, for Jesus, was to be hungry. to suffer in the desert with no food. And so to give in to Satan's suggestion to satisfy his hunger in this way would have been contrary to the will of the Father. 
long before the nails pierced his hands and his feet, Jesus demonstrates he had come not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not use his divine powers to satisfy his human needs at the outset of his public ministry because he knew to do so would be to deny his entire existence, his entire mission and purpose here on earth. Now, on a side note, we know that across the expanse of human history, that theologians have wrestled with whether or not Jesus could, in fact, sin. Those who emphasize his divine nature argue he could not sin, while those who highlight his human nature argue he had the potential to sin, even if he chose not to do so. Now, we don't have time to get into this deep theological discussion this morning, but welcome it in the future. Encourage you to do some research on yourself. But regardless of the position one takes, the temptations Jesus faced were genuine because their reality didn't depend on his ability to respond. In fact, because Jesus never yielded to his temptations, he bore the full brunt of their power. You see, you and I, when we give in to temptation, we short, short circuit that, and we, we don't experience that full temptation. And yet Jesus, in his perfect humanity, endured the full power of Satan himself and resisted that temptation. And so while we won't necessarily experience that intensity of temptations encountered by Jesus, know that these temptations do present themselves to us as reasonable alternatives to obeying God's known will. And so here's the million dollar question, at least in my mind. How do you know God's will when you are overcome by temptation, when life is hard, when the future doesn't seem to make sense and you're not sure which way to go, how do I discern God's will? The answer is found in the next two points. Point number five, our ability to overcome temptation is contingent or dependent upon our use of scripture. Whether or not we succeed or fail largely hinges on how we use scripture. Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. To resist the tempter, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Now note, he doesn't rationalize. He doesn't use logic. He is not overcome by his emotions and choose what feels good. Instead, he cites scripture, even in his physical weakness. And so our ability to overcome temptation is dependent upon our use of scripture. He says, it is written. He's clearly acknowledging the authority, the reliability, and the unchanging nature of scripture. 
For Jesus, once he found a passage in scripture that addressed his problem at hand, that was it. That was the end of the discussion. Case closed. And he demonstrates this principle with every other temptation hurled his way in this passage. Jesus was successful because he had built his entire life around pleasing the Father by obeying the Father's commands. We see in scripture that the word of God had shaped Jesus' thinking, it shaped his actions, and it shaped his character. We know from the gospel accounts that even as a preteen, as a 12-year-old, going into the temples, courts, he amazed the religious leaders with his understanding of scripture. And undoubtedly, it's because he spent hours and hours hearing, reading, memorizing, and meditating on God's word. Hear, read, memorize, meditate. Important things to make the word of God part of us. Now this morning you might object and you might say, Rob, that's no fair, that's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I don't know scripture that well. It's a good question. You might be asking yourself, Rob, not only do I not know scripture, but I'm doomed to failure because I failed so many times in the past. Well, the good news is, is none of us in Jesus Christ are doomed to failure. If you don't know scripture that well, and by the way, to some extent, all of us need to grow in this area because not all of us know God's word perfectly. If, if you're struggling in this area, I challenge you to obviously continue to grow in this, to study God's word, to make it part of you. But surround yourself with, with men and women who are further along in their faith than you are. Get their godly counsel. Seek them out. Ask their advice. They will help steer you in the right direction. Not only that, but God gives us a promise. He tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able. He will always provide a way of escape. So even if, even if scripture isn't um, very well rooted in your life, God will ensure that you are not tempted beyond what you can handle. I would encourage you, though, to keep, keep working and applying yourself in, in God's word. And that brings us to point number six. Our ability to overcome temptation is also contingent upon our spiritual contentment. It's contingent upon knowing scripture and using it, and it's also contingent upon our spiritual contentment. Jesus says that we are not to live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What he's doing here, he's not minimizing our physical needs. He knows we need rest. He knows we need food. Yes, we should be good stewards of our body, Yes, we should do our very best to honor God by what we consume. 
by how we stay in shape, by how we recover with adequate rest. What he is really addressing here is the danger of the devil trapping us into getting so focused on our physical material needs that we lose sight of our spiritual immaterial needs. Sadly, most people in the world are spiritually blind and they're spiritually empty. And it's evident by how they prioritize their lives and what they, how they live. God made us to crave him. When that desire is not satisfied, when we pursue other things apart from God, we pursue idolatry. And we fill ourselves up spiritually with things that don't last. Things that will not pass the measure of time. They will not hold into eternity. And we find ourselves spiritually anemic, out of shape, with no energy, no power, no motivation to go out and take advantage of the spiritual opportunities God has given to us. But the good news is, if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus tells us we will be filled. The Bible from beginning to end is full of illustrations to this point where as we hunger and thirst after spiritual righteousness, God will meet our need and fill us. He will give us contentment. And so our only ultimate eternal contentment can come as we are rightly related to God, as we feast upon his word, as we get to know him, as we enjoy and delight with him. And one day, as the book of Revelation tells us, we will sit together at the marriage feast of the Lamb and enjoy eternity with him. A little more than a week and a half ago, many of us men enjoyed an amazing dinner, didn't we? We had some great uh, words of encouragement from Chaplain Wayne and we enjoyed eight different types of protein. <laughs> and uh, I was shocked when I got there and, and the tables were already set up. It was like 25 feet long, <laughs> full of food. And we had some great appetizers into the eight proteins. And then we had dessert and coffee and tea on the end. And, you know, at my table, we were enjoying... Um, our first plate and then our second plate. <laughs> and then, okay, we'll get a dessert, right? So we were enjoying our fellowship and, and um, our food and we were content. And as I looked across the parking lot, I saw some guys breaking out in some meat sweats, right? <laughs> you know, some guys were like, oh, I, I, can't, I can't leave here um, until I can kind of let this process. But that's, that's how we should be spiritually. We should be so satisfied with God that we're not hungry for anything else. That we choose God 
over the spiritual junk food that surrounds us, whether that's social media, whether that's in our music, whether that's who we hang out with, what we choose to do with our free time. If you look back on your last week, what did you feed yourself on spiritually? What was your spiritual diet? Were you filling yourself up with things that don't satisfy? Or were you embracing what God had for you and you're digesting the truth of his word, the love of being with other believers, connecting in Bible studies, holding accountability partners, sharing intimate building times of mutual support and edification, listening to Pastor Rick's sermons, meditating, memorizing scripture on your own. All these things are appropriate substantive ways to have a healthy spiritual diet. I encourage you, if that's not you, if that hasn't been how you've been feeding yourself, commit yourself this morning to making some changes, to prioritizing what God wants for you. Commit yourself to nurturing that that taste of righteousness. And God will fill it. And then finally, when Jesus recites the phrase, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, he acknowledges God, not the human prophets, as the ultimate author of scripture. God is the author. Now, what does that mean? That means we need to be very careful in in reading scripture because it's authoritative to us as created beings. If our creator tells us, this is how I want you to live, we need to be very careful to do as he says. And so if he gives us this, this way of overcoming temptation, if he shows us how to succeed, we need to pay attention and learn from this so that we can grow and become more like Jesus. And so in conclusion, this morning we've seen that because Jesus overcame temptation in his human nature, we can have victory too by meeting our temptations as he met his. As we find spiritual contentment in God and and we apply our knowledge of his word, we will be protected from temptation. Even though many wrong choices may initially seem reasonable to us and they don't seem overtly evil. Yet even when we fail, even when we give in to sin, we can boldly approach God's throne of grace with confidence in our time of need. Why? Because we have a savior who perfectly endured temptation, lived a perfectly righteous life, and died a sacrificial death for you and for me on that cross. He rose again on the third day from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. We have a great savior in Jesus.
And so this morning, if you're struggling, knowing that you have struggled and failed in temptation over and over again, know that there is hope, know that there is a way of escape, know that Jesus provides us with a way of escape. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, find someone to trust in who can hold you accountable, who can help you. We can't do this on our own. We need one another. It's one of the reasons why we gather here corporately each week is to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we can live life with hope. We can live life with joy because not only has our great God exchanged our spiritual bankruptcy with his righteousness and his incredible riches, but he's also given us all the tools needed to overcome, uh, to overcome temptation. The praise team's going to come up in a minute, and we're going to close our service this morning with, with a song that's, that says, I love you, Lord. And scripture tells us that how do we know if we really love God? If we keep his commandments. And so my prayer this morning, and I, and I encourage you to do this, is as we sing this, offer it up as a prayer to God. That this week, as you sing this song, you are committing yourself to God. God, I love you. I lift up my voice to worship you. Because you have overcome sin and death. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You have given me victory over temptation. And I can go in grace. I can go in hope. I can go in peace, knowing that I'm uh, with you as, as one of your followers. And if you need to confess sin, if you have fallen into temptation and you've given in and you have a pattern of sin, you've struggled with sin, know that Jesus stands waiting. John tells us, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There is hope. Confess your sin, repent, trust in Jesus, and follow him. Amen?